Thank you, James. Good morning, everybody. Must be really concerned about this message this morning. Got prayed for twice in the prayer time, and James prayed for me, so it reminds me of the very first time I preached, which was before I was an elder. It was about two years before I was an elder, and they had asked me to uh, take the pulpit one Sunday, and uh, I guess Shirley must have been uh, church secretary then. This was like 94, and uh, there was an announcement in the bulletin, and it said, please pray for this morning's service. Bill Sullivan is preaching. So, that's how I feel every week. So. so what do you think is the fastest growing religion in the world? Any guesses? Somebody cheated. Somebody. Most research says Islam is growing the fastest. It's projected to grow 73% in the next decade, largely due to the population growth in Asia and Africa where most Muslims live. Now, Christianity remains the world's largest religion. I know you can't read that, but uh, roughly three in ten adults now say they're religiously unaffiliated. Uh, there's another way to look at it. Of course, religion in general is supposed to affect what you think and what you do. It's supposed to affect your attitudes about things in the world, not just about eternal things, and to put in religious terms what you worship. By that measure, there is another religion, and it's already been cited, that those who follow it would re uh, reject as religious at all. In other words, that I'm not religious, this is not religion. But it truly is, if you think about it. In other words, they might be among those who say they don't follow any religion. Or they might claim to be Christian, but only nominally. But I agree with some who call this the fastest growing religion, we're going to watch a brief video from one of the followers of this religion, and then we'll see another one immediately thereafter uh, from a writer who's encouraging us to be heretics of this growing religion. So let's watch it's this. It's 1045 a.m. on a Saturday. I'm 29 and single, and I don't have kids yet. Here's what your Saturday morning looks like when you're single at 29 and you don't have a kid running around the house. I didn't rise from my bed until 1015. Every time I thought, I should probably get up and do something. I thought, why? Nobody's making me. I'm not missing out on anything. I went to Beyonce last night, and I didn't get home until 1 a.m. And I danced and drank my little heart out, and I didn't pay a babysitter to watch my kids as I did that. And I woke up a tad over this morning, just probably why I was in bed for so long. And I was just scrolling on my phone and I saw a picture of shakshuka and I thought, you know what sounds really good? Maybe I'm gonna learn how to make shakshuka today. Cause I have no plans and I don't have kids and I don't have a husband and I don't have errands to run. I can go to the grocery store and learn how to make shakshuka. So that's on my agenda today. Also on my agenda, probably a rewatch of some Real Housewives of New York. I'm also doing a rewatch of Normal People on Hulu, which is really spicy and I highly recommend. Weirdly, I'm into this documentary on Netflix about blue zone countries. So I've got a pretty stacked day. Anyway, I say all this to say, whenever I'm hard on myself about why I'm not married and I don't have kids, and I should be further along at 29, almost 30. I wouldn't want to do anything else this Saturday. And I know that you can do all these things when you have kids and you're married and I understand, but the effortlessness and ease of my life, just kind of focusing on myself and the shakshuka I want to make or the Beyonce concert I want to go to really pays off when I'm hard on myself for not being where society tells me I should be in life.
There's a kind of mind virus. 84% of Americans believe that the highest goal in life is to make yourself happy. A whopping 94% believe that you must look within yourself to find answers. Let's be honest. How's this hashtag follow your heart, hashtag be true to yourself, hashtag look within for answers, how's that working out for us? Anxiety and depression and suicide rates have hit historic highs. Following our hearts is a false gospel. The system is cracked and it's crumbling all around us. Maybe there was someone infinitely more awesome than we are. More creative and compassionate, more wise, more powerful, more life-giving. And maybe we should follow his heart instead of our own. can certainly relate to the idea of wanting to sleep in a little later in the morning and not have your kids get you up well before you want to get up. But this woman articulates very well a key doctrine in this religion when she said the effortlessness and ease of my life just kind of focusing on myself. And the other video of course encouraging true followers of Christ to resist this fast-growing religion encourages us to be heretics. In other words, Resist the cultural norm of the fast-growing religion of selfism. Don't follow your heart is actually really good advice. That second video is actually a promotion for a book that will be released soon. Of course, even though it hasn't come out yet, Jim Grinnell has probably already read this book. And that really disturbs me, Jim. It's because I read a lot of books. I bought a book about improving my memory, and then I went home and I found five copies already at home. But seriously, we are consistently warned in the Word of God about idolatry. Now, that's an old-fashioned word we don't hear very often. But selfism is, in a very real sense, a worship of self, not simply selfish. Selfishness is just a symptom of selfism. In our day and time, we don't worship uh, stone statues. We don't worship golden calves. But we see idolatry all around us and if we're honest and we should be honest we see it and we must battle it in our own hearts too Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says put to death therefore that's pretty strong language put to death kill it what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry now this is one of those lists you don't want to see yourself in, right? 
And the worst part of it is that we can find other lists like this in Scripture with more things that we have to worry about. So this list doesn't nearly cover everything that can be called idolatry. But before we look at the challenge of this religion of selfism, which is at its root, idolatry, self-worship, we have to remember that the Word of God always admonishes us to look at our own hearts first. We need to remember that. We must ask the question, what is most important in my life to me? Now, idolatry is seeking security and meaning. This is just one definition, and we can unpack this further as we go along. Idolatry is seeking security and meaning in someone or something other than God. Uh, The reformer John Calvin said, For what is idolatry if not this, to worship the gifts in place of the giver himself? Today we worship a lot of things in our culture, in our world. Money, sex, power, nature, extreme self-expression, the false gods of me, myself, and I, radical autonomy, to name just the most prominent idols that we see at work in our culture in so many ways. There can be many more. Now, the greatest sin in the Bible, by far, is the sin of idolatry. It's at the root of pretty much any other kind of sin. I didn't go to the trouble of thinking through every kind of sin and see if there's a sin that's not at its root, idolatry. But I think if we took that exercise, we'd find there aren't any, or at least there aren't many. Idolatry is the main reason why God rebuked and judged the nation of Israel. Idolatry is when we violate the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, which says, You shall have no other gods before me. It's when we put something or someone first in our life, before the living and true God. Idolatry is the root cause of pretty much every other sin, which is why the first two commandments dealt with this. While the church today is focusing, and I think for the most part rightly so, on various sins related to human sexuality and lifestyle choices, many in the church who may not fit into these two categories might be inclined to think, well, hey, I'm okay. This doesn't involve me, even though they may be breaking the greatest commandment. Even good things, even good things that God has blessed us with can become idolatrous. We can idolize anything. Why? Because in our heart, we are all worshipers. We are all worshipers. So idolatry can even include when good things become God things. It's not a question of whether we will believe in a transcendent something or someone. It's a question of what that something or someone will be that we will worship. As Bob Dylan famously sang, you got to serve somebody. That's because everybody worships. The fact that some people can't see it this way doesn't change this reality. Now, uh, Thaddeus Williams, he's the professor at Biola University in California. He wrote the book that we saw promoted in the video a moment ago. He wrote an article outlining the commandments of selfism. And these are some of the sacred commandments of this ancient and still trending world religion. First of all, your mind is the source and standard of truth. So no matter what, trust yourself. The answers are within. 
Your emotions are authoritative, so never question or let anyone else question your feelings. In other words, follow your heart. We hear that a lot. You are sovereign, so use your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and desires. In other words, live your truth. There's another idea we hear often. You are supreme, so always act according to your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. You are the summum bonum, that's a Latin phrase for the highest or the greatest good or the standard of goodness. So don't let anyone oppress you with the old-fashioned notion of being a sinner who needs grace. And you are the creator. So use that limitless creative power to craft your identity and purpose. In other words, be authentic. Be yourself. Now, as I am fond of saying when Barb and I are watching some sort of a drama on TV or a movie, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong by adhering to this list and other things. Don't we see these things at work in our culture? Don't we sometimes wrestle with some of these things, if we're honest, ourselves? Maybe not as blatantly. I mean, we would never say you are sovereign. We may never say my emotions are authoritative. But does that come out in the practical sometime? Does it make decisions for us? We make ourselves miserable when we try to be our own source of satisfaction. If we make ourselves our own standard of what's good and what's just, it just makes us obnoxious and self-righteous. This misery is inevitable because we're not God. Wasn't that God's primary message to Job in the midst of his suffering? I'm God and you're not, so trust me. I mean, if you were to boil down all the things that we see in that book, that's the message of Job. I'm God, you're not, so trust me. God never intended us to trust in ourselves, to define ourselves, or be satisfied or enamored with ourselves. We were made to worship the creator of all good things. That's why he created us. He's way more interesting and awesome than ourselves. This author of the book, Thaddeus Williams, he wrote this, The more self-absorbed we are, the less awe we experience. The less awe we experience, the less fully and freely ourselves we become. It's almost paradoxical, isn't it? But it's true. Almost 5 million people visit the Grand Canyon each year. Do you know that? That's a lot of people. Nearly 4 million go to Yosemite. About 30 million visit Niagara Falls. Why is this? Why do so many people go to these amazing uh, sites in nature? Well, deep down, God made us to worship. And we want and we need those wow moments, don't we? The sense of awe and these things that God created, as incredibly beautiful as they are, were made not for us to worship these things, but to worship the one who made them to point us to something, to point us to something, someone unimaginably greater. That's one of the main reasons that Barb and I go to the mountains pretty much every year. Ask Barb how many times we'd arrive at a scene and I'd look at her and say, wow, wow. She probably got tired of hearing that from me, except when she was saying it herself. How many times we'd see a vista and remark on God's amazing creativity, his awesome power, to make such 
beauty. Where's the wow? When we see God's creation, do we think of the Creator? The primary initiative of the national parks came from a man named John Muir. Have you heard of John Muir? He was a man who loved the wilderness and he loved the mountains. And there was a documentary on the national parks that quoted him about his love for the great outdoors in several ways. And I really found myself resonating with some of what he wrote and said. The first episode of this documentary was even titled The Scripture of Nature. Right out of Romans 1, huh? I've had several very deeply spiritual experiences in different places, uh, the Rocky Mountains, uh, Beaver Lake in Arkansas. I do, in fact, feel a connection with the Lord in those settings. John Muir once wrote this, A few minutes ago, every tree was excited, bowing to the roaring storm, waving, swirling, tossing their branches in glorious enthusiasm like worship. But though to the outer ear these trees are now silent, their songs never cease. There's truth there, right? It made me think of this passage in Isaiah, You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. It made me think of Jesus telling the Pharisees who were complaining of the worship Jesus was receiving on Palm Sunday. Remember that? That if they kept quiet, what would happen? The stones would cry out in worship of him. But while John Muir said and wrote things about nature and creation that I can easily relate to and appreciate, he also said some things that are more problematic, illustrating a different type of idolatry. Watching this program, I thought a lot about how natural beauty, how God's creation can lead to worship. For me, it wells up in worship of the Creator God who made it all. I take walks in the morning. I can't work out. There's no gyms or pools. to, So I take about an hour-long walk pretty much every morning at sunrise. And uh, I see this, and sometimes I just have to stop, you know. I'm just walking along and trying to get a little exercise, trying to get my heart rate up at 10,000 feet, which is not that hard. And I see some of this stuff, and it's just, wow. I have those wow moments. So all these things reminded me of Paul's explanation, the Apostle Paul's explanation of what idolatry looks like and the inevitable downward spiral that begins when we glorify or worship created things that would include people, wouldn't it? Rather than the creator of those things. We read in Romans 1, beginning with verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they were, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we're living in Romans 1. 
when we think of idol worship, we tend to to think of the Ten Commandments. We read just uh, one part of this passage earlier. Let me read a little more context. You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So when we think of idolatry in a biblical sense, we tend to think of images, objects, golden calves, and such. As a result, we find the idea of idolatry a little bit easier to dismiss. Well, I don't do stuff like that, right? Because we can't relate to it. So there's probably still some cultures, I know there's still some cultures in the world that do actually uh, have physical, literal idols. Not too many of us have neighbors who have golden calves that they worship. My guess is, however, that we all know people who worship idols, whether they, like we, see it or not, whether we see it that way or not, whether we understand it that way or not. But let's look a little bit closer at this passage from Romans and see if we can legitimately apply some of what Paul is saying here to our day and time. There are a few key phrases here. First is in verse 21. People wouldn't worship or honor him as God or even give him thanks. Why is this important? Now to worship God is one thing, but to worship him as God is the key. Because in doing so, what are we doing when we worship him as God? We're acknowledging his claim to us, his claim to creation, his claim to our allegiance, his claim to our obedience, his right to tell us how to live and what and how to worship. When we worship God as God, we're proclaiming his greatness, we're proclaiming his sovereignty, we're acknowledging his creation, we're acknowledging his right to do in our lives what is best, whatever he wills. We're saying, yes, Lord, you're in charge of me. You're in charge of me. You're the one who knows what's good for me and what isn't. You're the one I will bow to in every area of my life. You're the most important thing there is. That's when we worship God as God. You're the most important than even the most wonderful things you make for me to enjoy. And this worship isn't just what we do in the first part of our service on Sunday. We call it the worship time. We call it the worship team. And that's okay. I'm not going to be the word policeman here. But singing to praises God is only one kind of worship. Giving thanks is an act of worship. Giving things is an act of worship. Giving time can be an act of worship. Paul's telling us, that when we don't worship God as God, and when we don't give thanks, when we don't acknowledge God as the source of everything that's good in our lives, it leads to foolishness. It leads to darkened minds. And it eventually, inevitably, leads to idolatry. Yes, even the kind of foolishness that it takes to think you can truly change a woman into a man or a man into a woman. Now that takes us to our second key phrase in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, where Paul tells us they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself. Now the things God created includes us. 
And that's why selfism is self-worship. Note there the words worshipped and served. Did you ever think about that? Interestingly, the word for serve here is sometimes translated as worship. These words are often synonymous. It's why we call this the Sunday service. You ever think about that? It's Sunday worship. Some people call it Sunday worship. It's the Sunday service. Both words are being used to express inward reverence and outward worship. Now, the late Tim Keller wrote that whatever we worship, we will serve. For worship and service are always inextricably bound together. We are covenantal beings. We enter into covenant service with whatever most captures our imagination and heart. It ensnares us. So every human personality, community, thought form, and culture will be based on some ultimate concern or some ultimate allegiance either to God or to some God substitute. Individually, we will ultimately look either to God or to success, romance, family, status, popularity, beauty, or something else to make us feel personally significant and secure and to guide our choices. Culturally, we will ultimately look to either God or to the free market, the state, the elites, the will of the people, science and technology, military might, human reason, racial pride, or something else to make us corporately significant and secure and to guide our choices. Again, if we tend to think of worship only as the songs we sing to God, we're missing a really important point here. What does worship mean? It encompasses a lot of things we won't examine this morning, but one uh, definition says that worship is homage rendered to God, which it is sinful idolatry to render to any created being. So what's homage? Well, the roots of this word refer to a feudal ceremony by which a man acknowledges himself the vassal, the slave of a lord. It's the relationship between a feudal lord and his vassal. Sometimes the way we tend to think of this word homage <clears throat> today is in another definition, which is an expression of high regard, respect, often used with the word pay, something that shows respect or attests to the worth or influence of another. So these definitions shed additional light for us on what idolatry is. Worship is paying homage to, ultimately acknowledging the lordship of, someone or something. It can be tacit, it can be implicit, or it can be explicit. Saying to whatever we're idolizing, you are the most important thing in my life. You're in charge. So imagine when we do that and we have idols in our lives, that's what we're saying. When we sing to our great God, the King of Kings, things like, you are the Lord of creation, Lord of my life. Or when we sing, you are my all in all, that's explicit. And that's proper worship of the only one who truly deserves worship. But when we devote our lives to something or someone, or devote our money to something, we devote our time to something more than to God, we're implicitly saying, you're in charge. Money, person, whatever that idol may be. We're saying, you're in charge. You know best. We might as well sing to that created thing. You are the Lord of my life. You are my all in all. Money, person, self, whatever it is. We could rewrite the lyrics to that great song in Christ alone. You know the song. We sing it often here. 
In me alone my hope is found. I am my life, my strength, my song. That's idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping or paying homage to something other than God, something that's ultimately a thing or a person that he created, including ourselves. So when we see it like this, it begins to hit home a little bit more, doesn't it? The way of looking of idolatry makes it harder to just think it's something pagans just did in the Old Testament, something we don't have to worry about, or maybe something that Hindus or Buddhists might do today. That's why I think it's not a stretch at all to say what the ESV study Bible tells us. The root sin is the failure to value God above all things so that he is not honored and praised as he should be. Idolatry is the fundamental sin. It's also why there's truth in what the church father Tertullian said, the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. There's a reason that the very first commandment is that we shall have no other gods before the one true God. This Romans passage, of course, is not the only biblical passage that warns us about idolatry. We could spend most of the morning looking at passages that either use that word or imply the idea of idolatry. But let's just take a few. It's not just an Old Testament theme, it's in the New Testament. In addition to the clear warning in Romans, there's a lot of other passages. Let's read just a couple more. How about Ephesians 5.5? 5, 5? For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And then we read in 1 John chapter 5, 21, very simple, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Here's what one commentator wrote about the 1 John passage. Now this is kind of a longer quote, so I want you to track with me here, pay attention, because there's a lot of meat here. So please follow clearly. In a world full of alluring objects, there was danger then, as at as there is at all times, that the affections should be fixed on other objects than the supreme God, and that what is due to him should be withheld. It may be added in the conclusion of the exposition of this epistle that the same caution is as needful for us as it was for those to whom John wrote. We are not in danger indeed of bowing down to idols or of engaging in the grossest forms of idol worship, but we may be in no less danger than they to whom John wrote here of substituting other things in our affections in the place of the true God and of devoting to them the time and the affection which are due to him. The world, its wealth and pleasures and honors we may love with a degree of attachment such as even an idolater would hardly show to his idol gods. This is practical. There is practical idolatry all over the world in nominally Christian lands as well as among the heathen, in families that acknowledge no God but wealth and fashion, in the hearts of multitudes of individuals who would scorn the thought of worshiping at a pagan altar, and it is even to be found in the heart of many a one who professes to be acquainted with the true God and to be an heir of heaven. God should have the supreme place in our affections. The love of everything else should be held in strict subordination to the love of him. He should be submitted to at all times as having a right to command and control us, 
be obeyed in all the expressions of his will by his word, by his providence, and by his spirit. Be so loved that we shall be willing to part without a murmur with the dearest object of affection, affection when he takes it from us. That's a tough word, but it's true. It's what scripture teaches. So think about this. How many Americans are defined by their idols, by the cars they drive, by the houses they own, the clothes they wear, the things they do, the self they obey and everything? Of course, not all these things are necessarily idols. Some of them are just things. For something to be an idol, there has to be an attitude of the heart that's attached to it. In and of itself, nothing's really an idol. It's how we view it, how we relate to it, how important it is to us, how much we devote ourselves to it. Seen this way, we can see how many things can become idols, even good things. They're more likely to be someone or something that occupies the place of God in your life. Maybe not always, maybe just sometimes. An idol pretends to give us what we should only seek and can only truly find in God. It gives you identity, meaning, value, purpose, love, comfort, significance, or security. If you worship alcohol, you can become an alcoholic. If you worship food, you can become a glutton. If you worship pleasure, you can become a sex or a drug addict. But these words, alcoholic, glutton, addict, don't adequately recognize the foundation of these issues. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Something or someone is more important, has greater value or authority in one's life than God. The other irony about idolatry and idols in general is that they will always let us down. They will always let us down. They'll at least let us down. They may destroy us. God is faithful. God is eternal. God is sovereign. But the idols we worship are not. Idols will inevitably let us down. They'll inevitably disappoint because they are false gods. So those who have made money their idol, as an example, sure have had a rough few years, right? With the lack of the faithfulness of that idol to keep their 401ks intact. Those who make sexual pleasure their idol are always disappointed because they're never satisfied. Those who've made power their idol will inevitably be out of power someday. Someone once said that today's idols are more in the self than on the shelf. And I think that's very true. When we elevate what we feel to be sacred, unquestionable, when we make satisfying ourselves the most important thing in our existence, we're making an idol of ourselves. This is what's that selfism, which I believe is the fastest growing religion in the world right now is all about. This is the most potent and prevalent form of idolatry in a world where idolatry is the norm in so many other ways. Think about this. We were never made as his creatures, as God's creation, to bear the impossible weight of creating, let alone sustaining our identities. Our identities are given to us in Christ as his creation. There is a better way, my brothers and sisters. There is a better way. Jesus promises us freedom from idolatry. When we worship God as God, there is joy, there is peace, 
there's meaning. Even the great scientist Albert Einstein, I don't know if he was a Christian, but even he realized some of this. He once wrote, a person first starts to live when he can live outside himself. It is awe that is the source of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. Einstein said awe is at the center of true religiousness. In other words, the more you revere something or someone more awesome than yourself, the more alive you become. The more you revere yourself as the most awesome being in existence, the more awful your life becomes, guaranteed. The more self-centered you become, rather than what the Word tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. God made us to want to be awestruck by Him. We want to say, wow. Proverbs 28, 26 says it pretty directly. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. I don't think I need to define fool for you. The video we saw at the beginning was sad and troubling from that woman at so many levels, not the least being how little value this woman sees in children. Kids to her were just a burden to bear, an inconvenience, a hindrance to the effortlessness and ease of her life and focusing on herself. I could preach a whole message on how just her low view of children as God's gifts, which in large part divide or um, informs our abortion culture. It drives our abortion culture, that low view. But again, at the root of this is idolatry. It's idolatry. This is why today's fastest growing religion of selfism leaves so many people cold. After they've been doing it for a while, they say, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Self-worship leaves us aweless and empty because we're not nearly as awesome as we like to think. There's only one being truly worth the designation awesome, and he alone is worthy of our worship. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the clarity of your word, which defines for us what we know, need to know, what we need to know about you, what we need to know about worship, that you are our creator, that you are the one who is worthy. You are the only one who is worthy of our worship. And worship or service to anything else is idolatry. Father, help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to allow the Holy Spirit to probe our own hearts to see those things in our lives which might be labeled idolatry. And then, Father, help us to root those things out by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit lives inside us and is able to inform our understanding of your word and our understanding of ourselves. We commit this now to you in Jesus' name. Amen.